This podcast is brought to you by Novo Nordisk. Nutrition plays a fundamental role in the development of obesity, but with a huge number of diets now available, it's easy to understand why people are confused. Tonight, I had the privilege of facilitating the second in a series of four Rethink Obesity Forums designed to educate and empower all healthcare professionals, and in particular GPs, to deliver effective evidence-based management to patients with obesity and provide advice to those at risk of developing it. I'm health journalist Casey Barros, and I'm joined by Sydney-based GP and advocate for people living with obesity, Georgia Rigas, and Gabrielle Maston, an accredited practicing dietitian and exercise physiologist. Welcome, ladies. Hi, how's it going? (laughs) Thank you for having us. Thank you for being here. Gabby, the theme of tonight was mistakes to avoid in dietary and lifestyle advice for obesity management. Why do you think there's so much confusion from both patients and healthcare professionals on this subject? Look, there's a lot of information out there. You know, with the internet now, you can Google anything you like. And of course, you know, the diets are very confusing because everyone says it's the best solution for weight loss. But as we know, not all diets suit everyone, Um, particularly if you uh, have obesity. You might have medications that interact. It may not be good for health conditions that you have. So, um, you know, you really have to choose the diet that is medically the best for you and also one that you can follow long term. And how is obesity weight loss and diet modification different to general diets for people who are just looking to lose a few kilos after they've indulged a bit too much? Yeah, so, look, you know, uh, obesity is a chronic disease, right? Um, So we need to look at a diet that we know that we can sustain for a long period of time, or if we don't like to say diet, just healthy eating patterns. Um, And also, as I mentioned before, medications. So if we're doing, for example, a meal replacement diet, we have to make sure that we're going to get a GP involved so that we can adjust our medications so that we don't end up being dizzy or having hypoglycemic attacks and all the rest of it. So when you're dealing with obesity, is there a best diet and best exercise program? And how do you choose what you think will work when there are so many out there? Gabby? Yes, it's really up to what the person thinks that they can do. So there is no one best diet or no one best exercise program. But, um, you know, as long as someone can commit to it long term and it fits within their lifestyle and their family's eating patterns, then that's going to be the best thing for them. Um, and the same goes with exercise. So any little bit of exercise counts, whether you have five minutes to spare or an hour to spare, it's all going to contribute to better health and in combination, uh, weight loss. And are the exercise recommendations for people living with obesity different to those who aren't? Uh, no, look, the ex- exercise recommendations are pretty standard. It's, you know, um, exercising most days, uh, either vigorous to moderate intensity. Um, I think Generally, it's like 300 minutes of um, uh, moderate activity per week or 150 if it's more vigorous. Um, You know, we know that exercise doesn't really contribute that much to weight loss. Like you have to run marathons to burn off a hamburger, Mm. you know. So it's really just about getting your fitness up, building that lean muscle tissue um, and helping with chronic disease management. That's why we would introduce exercise as the primary purpose. And something that you talked about tonight is that what's vigorous and what's moderate is subjective. And so for people with obesity, that's something that you need to take into consideration. Yes, of course. Look, people living in a larger body, it's 
can be quite difficult to move. There can be a lot of pain associated with it or, or injury or illness. So um, vigorous activity is anything that we perceive to be hard. So it may be for a person living with obesity, walking down the street might be vigorous enough compared to someone who is a healthy weight, um, might need to run instead to get that same level of intensity. Mm. Georgia, there's this idea that fast or rapid weight loss isn't as good as gradual weight loss. Is there any truth to that? It's actually been disproved. Um, In a study by Purcell and colleagues, they actually found that whether a person loses weight very quickly or very slowly, it makes no difference to the amount of weight that's regained down the track. And if I may just add in there, we don't want to become weight-centric alone. Yes, weight is one way that we can measure a person's response to any intervention that we do, but we want to take a holistic approach, look at the person as a whole, looking at health improvements, functional improvements, wellness and quality of life um, parameters. We want to look at the person as a whole, not just the kilos on the scale. Let's talk about very low energy diets. What role can they play in obesity? And, And most importantly, what should a doctor be aware of when they're starting a very low energy diet with a patient? As a GP, if you're thinking about um, prescribing a VLED to a patient, I'd strongly recommend pairing up with a dietitian who also is experienced in prescribing and managing people with um, who are on a VLED, so that way uh, it is a, a true combined team approach. Now, uh, for my clinical experience, I often uh, am asked to put patients on a VLD diet if they're going to have elective surgery, for example, hip or knee surgery or abdominal surgery that may or may not be bariatric surgery, could be abdominal surgery for a different reason. Uh, Other times I've actually been um, prescribing a VLD for someone who needs to lose weight fairly quickly so that they can be considered for IVF or other assisted uh, uh, conception therapies. So the sky's the limit. We just need to at least think of it as an effective tool because the evidence is there to support the use of VLEDs by general practitioners, but you need to make sure that uh, you educate the patient about how they work, what side effects to anticipate and how to troubleshoot these, and also let's not forget that we need to be monitoring their medication. We don't want them to develop low sugars or low blood pressure uh, or any other complications. Uh, a well-educated and supported patient can effectively lose weight with a VLED. To play devil's advocate, if there's a GP sitting in rural Australia right now thinking, I don't have a dietitian available to me and, and certainly not to my patients, how do we support them? There's a couple of ways. Firstly, from um, if they're a member of the College of Journal Practice, we do have some resources on our website that are accessible by our members. And in particular, I remember doing a module only 18 months ago on VLEDs with some practical tips on how to start them, what medications to review and the like. The other great resource that we have available now, given we have the COVID-19 situation, there have been some changes to Medicare provisions. And so dietitians and other allied health staff do not necessarily have to see the patient face-to-face. They can see them virtually. And so by accessing the Australian Dietetics Association website, you can literally uh, look up and find a dietitian um, who's available, whether or not they uh, charge via Medicare or or a gap payment, et cetera. So uh, that would be another way that I would encourage my fellow GPs to try to find a dietitian. 
Gabby, I assume that when you're working with people with obesity, one of the things that's really important to understand is is what they're eating. And one of the ways that I understand you do that is with food diaries. Can you take us through how to use them for healthcare professionals that are looking to use food diaries with their patients? Yeah, look, you can do a food diary in multiple ways. So either electronically, so using apps. Um, Some examples are calorieking.com or MyFitnessPal where people can track the amount of energy that they're consuming every meal. Um, And that also provides a good uh, education platform too, because people can see how much energy is in food and how that's accumulating through the day. Um, Whereas other people might use a paper-based method, uh, which can give a broad overview of portion sizes of what people are doing. But I think overall, it's about the patient having awareness of what they're actually eating, and then being able to, with your facilitation as the healthcare professional, well, what are the things that I can start adjusting? Where is the additional energy coming from? And I'm I willing to change those. And top line as an HCP, what are you looking for? When a person brings in a food diary, what I would first ask them is, um, is there anything in here that you can see that you're willing to change or you think that might be contributing to your weight or that's not working for you? So you don't always have to come up with the answer for the person. It can be completely patient-centric. And by asking, opening up the the floor for the person to come up with their own response, you'll actually get better patient engagement. Mm. Um, If you do want to start looking at, um, say, say a person doesn't give you a response or they say, oh, I'll just increase water and you don't think that they're really going to see much change out of that, you can say, great, increasing water is fantastic but let's talk about some of the discretionary food you have in here. Why are you eating it? Um, is that something that you think you can change? Those types of things. So the real obvious items would be things high in fat and high in sugar, for example, soft drink, chocolate, ice cream, that type of thing. Georgia, what emotional, cultural and social factors do you need to consider when you're working with patients in clinic? How long do we have? <laughs> <laughs> so um, starting off with emotional Look, we know that we eat because we're hungry and we need the energy, but we also eat for non-hunger reasons, the emotions. And uh, if, as uh, Gabby just mentioned, we identify that people are doing it too often and the portions are way too big, then we really need to support them in, in making some positive changes. Now, from a cultural point of view, we live in a very ethnically diverse uh, country, uh, which is great. However, if the patient in front of you is from a culture that you're not particularly familiar with or you're not exactly aware of what a particular religious event or um, series of events may entail, just ask them, you know, I'd like to find out more. Tell me more about what what happens from an eating and drinking and celebrating point of view when you celebrate this particular event. And then, um, as Gabby mentioned, politely put it back to the patient and ask them, okay, so out of what you've just said, what is mandatory part of the religion and what's um, discretionary, meaning it's something that we like to do but we don't have to do? Um, And then um, gently direct them to say, okay, so out of everything, where do you think you could maybe um, cut back a bit or make some changes? So that you're still empowering the patient and therefore they're more likely to comply and, um, you know, take on board what they're meant to be doing. But also you're not asking them to give up what's very important and personal for them. And uh, I like to always uh, remind the adults that I consult with that uh, they are a role model for their kids. 
And so if we can set a good example and get the appropriate uh, cultural and religious um, celebrations right without um, adding in too many un- discretionary foods that don't necessarily need to be there, then I think we're doing uh, the next generation a great service as well. Mm, agreed. Gabby, I think for anybody who has tried to stick to a diet, we all know how tough that can be, no matter who you are. Mm-hmm. What techniques do you use to help patients stay engaged in the program that you set for them? Because they really need to commit for the long term. Yeah, so look, it's all about education in in the beginning to overcome the misconception that you're just going to do a diet for a certain period of time and that's all you're going to ever have to do. So it's really about committing for the rest of your life, well, hey, I'm going to have to make significant changes to keep the weight off that, you know, I've, I've just lost. Um, so you can do things like keeping a food diary, which we talked about, using trackers, um, but then also um, bringing in behavioural things like weighing in once a week on your own. So not necessarily relying on the healthcare professional to do that for you, but to take initiative yourself um, so that you can track your progress. Georgia, a lot of this is easier said than done. What was the sort of key learning, the key takeaway for you tonight in terms of the value that we were able to give to healthcare professionals that tuned in? My take-home message to my fellow GPs is that we don't have to do it alone. And we don't have to try to tackle this all in one consultation. So utilise what resources we do have, engage other team members, and remember that we're in there for the long haul. We're not going to um, be able to solve this chronic disease. There's no cure for it. Our purpose is to try to manage it a little bit at a time. Very good. Thank you so much, ladies, and thanks for joining us. That's it for this recap. We have many more vital learnings to come in this series, so please take the time to listen to our other episodes on starting a conversation about obesity, management options, and weight loss maintenance. Until next time. Please note the views expressed in this episode are the experts' own and the information here is not to be taken as personal medical advice. Both experts received an honorarium for their participation in the forum.